Welcome to Mad Digital Next. I'm Brad Carr, and in a moment, my colleague Alicia Abaratne will introduce our guests, Victoria Richardson of Miko and Larissa Beach of Cersei. We're recording today at NAB's Melbourne offices on the lands of the Wurundjeri people. And I want to just quickly set out some context before Alicia brings in our experts. At NAB, we're pretty passionate about digital identity. We see it as an area where we can make a significant contribution to the Australian society and economy. We're really anxious to step forward and do our bit as part of building an ecosystem for the country. And to that end, we recently held a two-day design sprint, one in Melbourne, one in Sydney. The first of those looking across a range of, of real priority use cases, things like renting a home, onboarding for a job, and how we engage in online chat groups. And the second in Sydney, where we focused more on perhaps what are the four cross-cutting themes that we found emerged from those use cases, adoption, data minimization, interoperability, and inclusion. They were great occasions, very rich discussions with over 50 participants from a mix of other banks, academia, uh, government and regulatory agencies, uh, privacy lawyers, consumer advocates. Some really great diverse perspectives, but I think very much a shared interest around helping to develop an ecosystem that's going to work for Australians. So today we're going to get into really what came out of those design sprints. We have a white paper that we're publishing in December. It's great to hear the perspectives of two of our very active participants in Victoria and Larissa. I do just want to note that the sprint was conducted under the Chatham House rule, meaning that we won't be attributing any of the comments to specific participants. But clearly, there's a lot of great themes that emerged from the day, which we're delighted to share. Alicia. Thanks, Brad. And without further ado, let's kick off. Joining us at NAB's Melbourne HQ, we have Victoria Richardson and Larissa Beach. Victoria is the Chief Operating Officer at MECO. Miko is a pioneer of data privacy and digital identity, providing enterprise tools for the secure exchange of personal data. Victoria has worked with payments and identity technologies for over 20 years and is experienced in business development, product marketing and strategy consulting. She has advised a range of companies from startups to major banks, telcos and government bodies on the business implications of technology change. Welcome. We also have with us Larissa Beach, Larissa is the head of commercial for CERTSI, which is Seek's in-house verification credential passport, providing users with a secure and trusted way to verify and share their work credentials and complete compliance checks. The solution has over 2.5 million users that have verified and shared over 4.5 million credentials on their Seek profile in Australia and New Zealand. Larissa leads the partnership sales and marketing for CERTSI to increase value and adoption for users. Larissa has expertise across product design and strategy for leading Australian and international brands. It's a pleasure to have you both join us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Victoria, I might start with you. And Alicia's alluded there to your, your very deep history in this space. And uh, I think not long ago, you and I were remarking together about how you know, the Murray inquiry into the financial system back in 2015 made some actually very pertinent observations and recommendations around digital identity. Um, so you come to this this subject with a, a much greater level of experience and knowledge of the history probably than than most. Perhaps you know, as you reflect on that design sprint that we've conducted, were there particular elements of that that perhaps fit with the developments or opportunities that you've seen with Miko and with your clients? So, and equally, perhaps on the flip side, you know, what are the areas where you'd like to see us go faster as a nation? So, yes, I think I sent the press release from 2015 where the Payments Council committed the industry to collaborating on digital identity. So, so it's really great to see that progress. I think one of the points you raised, Brad, is about the collaboration. So you had 
public sector organizations, private sector organizations, schemes, academics, and that's really important. I just wanted to reflect on two facts of that. Digital identity like payments is a network business, so you need the different providers in that network to to agree on certain things. They need to agree on the technology and the business rules. So having those people in that room is really, really important. So so I think Marith would have been very, very proud of what you'd managed to achieve there because you need those um, all those parties. And then if we just zone in on one of the parties, it's critically important to have the government in that space. Mm-hmm. And not because you need a government identity for all of the transactions. The reason you need the government in the space is because digital identity is increasingly seen as critical infrastructure. So if we look at some countries where they haven't had sort of sanction of the government or the blessing of the government, it's now creating problems. So in Sweden, everyone thinks of bank ID as a very positive example of what the banks achieved, it was. But when the Reichsbank has looked at issuing a central bank digital currency, they've highlighted the fact that it's the bank who issues a digital identity as an issue. And and their concern is that if you don't have a positive relationship with your bank, that maybe you won't onboard to the digital economy. So it's worth reflecting on that. And then I think in, in the EU, a lot of the momentum around the the digital wallet has come from the government thinking about the role that big tech has to play. So having government on board is really important. Where where I think it would be nice to go faster is really thinking about standards as infrastructure. So I know we'll come on and talk about interoperability and adoption, but standards, my understanding is that the federal government at the moment have verifiable credentials and wallets somewhere in their sites down the line. And and you could argue that that's where you should start. And that that's where I wish we could go a bit faster. Thanks. Thanks, Victoria. Now, Larissa, um, during day one of our design sprint, employee onboarding was one of the priority use cases that mm-hmm. we looked at. And David Birch, our expert from the UK, he thought that employee onboarding was a very compelling value mm-hmm. proposition. How did you find the design sprints discussions and um, relating back to the challenges and opportunities that you face at CERTSI and what you're doing there? Yeah, sure. I mean, to be honest, I wasn't surprised that David Birch found it quite a compelling use case. I mean, all of us, it's so salient to all of us. I mean, everyone has onboarded to an organisation and everyone has experienced, I suppose, maybe not such an efficient process. And so as a group, I think coming up with the challenges, and it was quite a cross-functional group from different sectors and across public and government, the challenges were quite obvious to us. And the core ones that came out were around data sharing for both the individual, because as an individual, as you imagine when you're onboarding into an organisation, you've got to provide that organisation with really sensitive documents about yourself. I mean, your passport, your driver's licence, your qualifications, and you hand that over to the organisation and you sort of wipe your hands and you're like, I hope in the abyss that it's okay. You know what I mean? Like you're handing over all this information and might email it across or it might seem like a more secure way with a third party. But you've just got to hope that they're going to look after your data in a secure way. They're going to delete it well and that not everyone's going to have access to it. And so from an organisation point of view, 
There's actually a really sticking, interesting sticking point to think about as well. They've got to think about how do they access that data? How do they have robust processes in place to make sure it's deleted? And also a robust process in place to make sure that the right people can see it. There's also, I suppose, the default in the onboarding side of things. There's not a lot of um, standards and recommendations of how long you keep that data and um, what you've got to make sure you collect. And so everyone just defaults to collecting everything and storing it for a really long time. So I suppose when we looked at like one of the really big challenges around onboarding, like the data storage and sharing was really high up there. There's also this really big challenge around time, how long it actually takes people to onboard you all these onboarding checks and the efficiency around it. So for the individual, you might have multiple roles in your career. We expect people to move around a lot. Each time you've got to do this, you've got to find the documents, you've got to reach up into your cupboard and find your qualifications and dust it off. You have to get it certified, you have to get things verified, you have to wait for all these background checks to come back. It's really inefficient, takes a long time, but you'll do it because you really want to get this job. And for an organisation, this time and efficiency, one, it costs them a lot of money to actually do these checks, to wait for the check to come through, and then to have to make that risk assessment of whether they'll just take on that person and wait for the check to come back and hope that they're actually going to be compliant, or whether they take the risk of not onboarding them, waiting for the checks to come back. Maybe they lose that applicant in that time. So there's like this, this real inefficiency and this kind of risk as well. One of the other really interesting things, and this is something SIG thinks about a lot, is that all of this is done at the end of the process, right? So we wait until you do this really robust process of interviewing, phone screening, assessments. It can take weeks and weeks. And then we check at the very end all the things they have. And some really interesting stats is 71% of job seekers actually admit to stretching the truth or embellishing their CVs. And I assume it's actually quite higher if it was the actual amount. That's just the ones that admit to it. Right? No, that's okay. That's what I wanted to highlight. They're the ones that admit to it, right? And so we actually experienced this firsthand. It was a few years ago, we were doing this experiment with a large known ride-sharing company. And we were onboarding them. We'd done the whole process. Um, we asked one really kind of core question, do you have a driver's license? And we got all the people through to the very end of the process, which took us weeks. And what we found was one in three didn't actually have their driver's license. That's like over 30% of people, the minimum thing we needed to actually onboard them didn't have it. And so I suppose like when we come back to these challenges, um, SEEK and I suppose a lot of other people are thinking, how do we actually, you know, it, it's quite an exciting space because there's a lot of opportunity to improve, I suppose, when it comes to onboarding. And something that SEEK's been considering, we actually asked our question this about seven years ago, could we actually flip? The question like is the question how do we just improve onboarding or do we need to think about how the processing recruitment is actually done like can is there could we be quite i suppose um courageous in how we think about this and think about adding trust at the start yeah. so we reimagine like what would it take or how could we reimagine a world where hirers and candidates could actually have this information up front not to necessarily stop the onboarding process and having to do those rigors of tests but if you knew everyone up front had the base the things that they needed in order to onboard for the role. It really helps streamline that efficiency, I suppose, for both the recruiter and both help, help the candidates stand out. And that's really where CERTSI emerged. So CERTSI is an in-house organization within SEEK to help verify essentially all the things that a candidate claims. So you can imagine all the things they claim, their digital ed, like who they are, their skills, where they worked, um, all their licenses. We thought, imagine if you could verify all those things and show it to the hire at the very start of the process. And then for the candidate or the job seeker, 
Imagine if you could use that same experience to then onboard, which kind of helps solve a lot of these issues around data sharing, time and efficiency. So that's where we evolved from. Um, and I suppose we're on a really exciting path to continue to scale and to really add that value to the overall ecosystem. But, you know, honing in on this um, onboarding side of things, it really excited us because a lot of people saw those challenges and it was something that we're excited to try and innovate and take some lead on. But I think it's a problem that a lot of people can relate to. And I like the way you started with that, Larissa, talking about the, you know, the dilemma of the data that as an individual you're handing over and yeah. you, you're taking that leap of trust that it's not all just going to end up on the dark web and be the basis for the next lot of yeah. identity theft, yeah. impersonation, et cetera. It is the notion of how instead of data being talked, I always thought rather badly as being the new oil, <laughs> rather as Kingwood Mallison's piece described it earlier in the year, perhaps as the new asbestos. But, but for, the, for the business, as you described, yeah. the, the new organisation that needs to be thinking yeah. about, you know, how do we, we store and protect and allow access? Yeah. But the other point I think you make there around, you know, perhaps rethinking the process and how the credentials are, are maintained and shared. You know, Victoria, it probably takes me back a little bit to where we had your your colleague Katrina Dow on our mm -hmm. podcast uh, not long ago. And Katrina was relating the example that Miko had launched with Howist University and KBC Bank in yes, Belton. that's right. And and if I took that correctly, this notion of Katrina was very careful to, to refer to it as a secure container, or I think KBC referred to it as a vault mm -hmm. of where you can bring together, in that case, academic credentials or academic requirements yeah. together with other attributes that might be financial or identity in some way kind of, I guess, gets me thinking along this journey of where, whether it's the European catalyst out of EIDAS2 and identity wallets, mm -hmm. but are there ways in which we can, you know, bring to market solutions, integrated, interoperable solutions that are going to solve some of the problem that the risk has yep. been describing? I think, um, I think the main activity that we see in the market that will drive that is the work of the Open Wallet Foundation. So under the Linux Foundation, you have a, a very powerful group of individuals who made this really powerful observation that you cannot move your data from one app to another. You cannot move your digital assets. And in an environment where data is being tokenized, we need to have ways that allow people to move that the token value from one space to another. And so they've set up this in incredible group under the Linux Foundation, and they have Microsoft as part of that. They have Google as part of that. They now have the Chinese government. And, um, you know, one of the things we say about where's it going in the future? Well, you don't have to be able to predict the future, but you need to observe the present. So what we have in the present is these big organizations coalescing around standards mm -hmm. with portability of, of digital assets at their core. So I think the the future that we'll see is that I will be able to have a certificate or um, a, a credential that's been issued by SEEK and I will hold that in my NAB wallet because that's where I want to choose it and it will be possible from an interoperability perspective because of the standards. Yeah, mm. um, yeah Daniel Goldschneider, I know uh, Open Wallet Foundation has got a great vision around, you know, the open source capability with wallets. And yeah. you mentioned they'd recently uh, had China come on board. He told me that the first two governments they had come on board were the UK and Bhutan, and I couldn't think of two more uh, diverse ones, but uh, truly a global <laughs> enterprise. Um, Victoria, if we continue, um, we mentioned the the four sort of cross-cutting themes that we yeah. had, and uh, I wanted to pick up a little bit more on the one of adoption with you. 
and perhaps you know your views on the key barriers you see to adoption of digital identity in Australia and, and what it's going to take to move the needle on that. Mm. And it's funny, Larissa and I were on the, in the same group on the, on the day in Melbourne and we had this thing about the stick and the carrot. You know, how, do you change, <laughs> how do you change behaviour? You know, yeah. part, part stick and part carrot. Anyone who had kids or anything understands that you've got to get that mix right. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think in terms of the stick, you know, what we're seeing in the market is fines and, and fines for data breaches. So why will organisations stop collecting that data because they'll be fined? I'm not sure that fines will um, will be the determining factor. What will happen is the reputation. So organisations will lose customers because of reputation uh, risk around around data breaches. So the the, the stick is their their understanding of the reputation. Then in terms of the carrot, I mean, again, we were saying. Wouldn't it be great if you think really creatively, why shouldn't SMEs get tax breaks for not collecting data? That's something you can you can prove. And um, I understand that's very hard to introduce that sort of thing. But again, picking up on one of Larissa's points, the stick for the organization should be their faster time to value. So uh, in the in the employment case, we understand you you hire that person sooner. But the, in lots of other market sectors as well, the time to value, if you can shorten the period of time over which you establish trust, the customer gets the benefit from that and the, and the business offering the service can monetize that. So, so I think there is a carrot and stick. And then I think the other thing around adoption is education. And, and we do see specific points where industry has moved in a direction and has run very powerful, clear information campaigns. And probably the most recent one in the Australian market is the transition from magnetic stripe and signature to chip and pin. And the industry got together with banks and the retailers, and there was this very clear line of protect your pin. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I'm not I'm not a big brand marketeer at that level, but somebody will be and someone will come up with a very powerful mantra yeah. around What's the behavioural change in in businesses and consumers to to lead to that adoption? I think that, yeah, and there's also something around um, the users are going to do something if it's really powerful and useful to them in those core moments of mm -hmm. truth in your life, right? So mm -hmm. I suppose from the seat perspective, like getting a job and standing out to prospective hires, that's a really important jobs to be done for you. Like you want to put your best foot forward. And that's why we've positioned it as something optional to, for you to do, to do on top of your application and standing out to the prospective hirer. You can verify your digital identity, so who you are and all your credentials, because it gives you an extra leg up. And that's why I suppose it's been quite successful and had really strong conversions, because candidates in this case, they have a really powerful reason to do something. And it's quite similar in a lot of other use cases. So when you're renting a house or when you're trying to buy a car, or you're looking for a flatmate, like a yeah. lot of these are the really kind of emotional but important moments of truth. If the digital identity solution, I think when we're thinking about adoption, like it's got to be frictionless and easy to use and you've got to have choice. But in terms of adoption, it's got to be, I think, often like I think a really salient and a purpose to do it for why and how it's going to help you. Like we've got to think about the users, like what's the purpose of doing this for them? And for organisations, what's the purpose of them adopting having a really strong digital ID and for marketplaces, it's adding trust to their marketplace with 
AI and a lot of things that are kind of homogenizing how people are viewed online and also things are done in the digital space now, marketplaces such as like a sink or something around, you know, real estate, that type of thing, adding trust is critical now to, it's, it's not so much for differentiation, it's they really need to do it in order to stay um, competitive and really be giving the value to both sides of the market. And I suppose having made that point of the, the different types of transactions, I, I want to keep going with that theme of interoperability. And, mm-hmm. um, and Larissa, you know, keen for your thoughts around, you know, thinking a bit with a, a product perspective on how we can design to ensure interoperability across the ecosystem. Yeah, sure. I mean, I always always has to come back to the consumer perspective and needs, like what do they want as well? And I think one of the core things we're going to have to really ensure into when it comes to digital ID is that um, people have the ability to express choice, but use digital ID in all those really important use cases that matter to them. So we talked about some of those high frequency things like, you know, proving who you are online so you can purchase something, but then also those um, more emotional, less frequent situations like getting a job or buying a house. Um, So I think from an ecosystem level, it's about having standards so individual products can align um, but also have that kind of even playing field because across government and the private sector. So the government has a really interesting, you know, place to support in terms of actually having their own really big use case, being MyGov or logging into government services. And true inter- interoperability would allow users to choose whether they use the government ID version of that or they choose to use another accredited um, and trusted service to be able to kind of do that. So, like, I, I almost imagine... Imagine if digital ID almost was very similar to how we have, you know, we lived to the payment sort of scenario where you can choose who your payment provider is and it's truly interoperable in the sense that I have complete confidence that I can walk into Coles or I can walk into Woolies and pay exactly the same way and have complete choice over that. The same as Woolies and Coles also have the choice on what technology they use, but everyone's getting the same jobs done. They're paying for something, Right. And so I imagine a world where digital ID is the same. You have the choice, um, but you have absolute confidence. Whatever you need to use that digital ID for, you're going to be able to. I love your example about payments in it, and it's one that I often use when I'm running around in payments. And sometimes I try and give myself a hard time about the simplicity of payments because one of the challenges around digital identity is the risk. And with payments, I'm not saying there is no risk, but the risk is really well understood. It's contained and it's much harder in some, if you want to call them identity transactions, it's much harder to work out the risk. So years ago, I was doing some work for a bank in the UK and we were talking about online dating. It's a cracking use case. Romance scams mm-hmm. are one of the fastest growing scams in the US. It was the mm-hmm. it was the area where most people lose their money and they're, they're the bank's vulnerable customers. Romance scams happen because you don't know who's on the other side of that computer. So we naively, as it turns out, had this idea, give your customers a credential signed by Bank X and they can present that online. Mm-hmm. And the banks are very squeamish about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's dating. It's it's completely legal. So I think it's, I, I love the payments analogy and somehow identity mm-hmm. and uh, it's, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. So I do think it will be the case that over time, different providers step into that space in the same way that you've had different providers step into payments. Mm-hmm. You've had 
stripe and square come in and do things that the big providers serve and like what you're gonna stick that jack that uses an audio signal into your phone you're not going to accept a payment on that yeah and they did yeah and then it's disrupted a whole industry oh, so. and, and and to that point around the different providers when it comes to payments um i think for interoperability to work as well it has to it has to make sense to the consumer be quite consistent so i think where payments is really um I suppose had such success is that you're really confident as a consumer that you're going to know how to do it. It's not yeah. confusing. It's like you tap yeah. it, regardless yeah. of whether it's Stripe or Square or it, it, one of the big banks, like you know how to do it. And I think that's going to be one of the really interesting challenges and opportunities when it comes to digital ID. First, we have to have um, the foundations and the standards that we all agree with and, and what makes a trusted platform and product that they, we need to hold ourselves accountable for. But then what's the experience that is consistent and makes sense? Because I think that also then, you know, falls into adoption um, and true interoperability. The experience also has to make sense to the consumer and have a level of um, understandability naturally through how they're doing the, the job. Yeah, you is, get to the point of yeah. ubiquity and familiarity in the same yeah. way as those payments examples. Abs yeah, absolutely. But a lot of that will happen under the hood. It's easy to use a card, but when you put your pin in, and the risk of being a nerd, you know, yes, public key cryptography happening <laughs> below that. Yeah. And so that's what we, I agree entirely, that's what we have to do with identity. We have to think about how do you wrap that experience around the, you know, phenomenally complicated, and we're glad it's complicated because at Miko we've got the skills around that that people pay us for, but it's how do you simplify that and turn it into a great user experience? Absolutely. Yep. So zooming out, um, it would be great to hear from both of our guests. What was one thing that really stood out to you as a key takeaway or call to action arising out of the design sprint? I keep thinking about one discussion on the um, second day of the design sprint, and it was this discussion about private providers. So in the Australian market, we're very familiar with this analogy about swimming between the flags on beaches, and we're familiar with it because of CDR. And, and Scott Farrell has done a very good job at providing that message. So we see the, the flags as a very powerful imagery. <laughs> the the bank analogy got a bit of a run in, uh, in my design and. And I'm just, I think the run I gave it as a European was to say, in Europe, there are private beaches and it's anathema in Australia. Everyone thinks, how can you have a private beach? But there are private beaches. And similarly with identity, there are private providers. And I think the discussion that I keep coming back to after that was, my question was, how do you regulate with a small r, but you know, how do you make sure that there's appropriate competition and mm. access with those private providers? And, and I loved the answer that, that came to that and the discussion that followed was that if we think about digital identity as critical infrastructure, then it will have to be treated as other pieces of critical infrastructures. If you're providing a public service, then you will need to meet certain thresholds and and I think that's really powerful because if if very um if very powerful organizations with strong market share don't want to change their their behavior and perhaps, perhaps they shouldn't be forced to 
but they will need to meet certain thresholds around resiliency and, and interoperability. You know, it's important that they'll be able to provide some level of connectivity and interoperability with other providers. So I keep coming back to that. It's, it was my big takeaway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that was, that's a really good point, um, Victoria. And I suppose from my perspective, I mean, holistically, I was incredibly encouraged, I suppose, and optimistic, just how well aligned, like it was quite a diverse, um, I suppose, group of working people. And I, I think that across all of us, that the core principles really, like it wasn't controversial in any way. It was really agreed and accepted and I suppose enthusiastic about how we can really start to think about them. So I suppose I was really optimistic and encouraged by seeing that. And also just highlighted how foundational digital ID is really and critical. It's becoming to just so many things of how we think about the world and what we do within Australia and beyond. Um, I think all of us thought quite deeply about our unique spaces and the, the audio that being a part of that group helped us unpack quite holistically how we need to think about it in Australia um, and then bring our expertise within our use cases to that. So that was a takeaway for me just to see. It was, a, it was honestly, a few of us said this at the end, but it was like a therapy session. Like we're all, <laughs> we're all embracing these really big problems and it was really cool to do that collectively and make sure that we're aligned. Yeah. And People like us. It was <laughs> yeah, it really, it really was. It was, and as I said, yeah, encouraging and optimistic to see that we're all grappling with really the same big questions that we're, we're all trying to work through. It's fantastic to hear. And I guess casting our gaze forward as a final question for, for you both, yeah. um, we held a futurist session during day two of the design sprint. <laughs> Fast forward to five years in Australia, what do you see as the ideal future state for the implementation of digital ID in Australia? Yeah, sure. Um, choice. I'm very passionate about um, Australians being able to have a choice over who they are able to use their digital ID. Data minimization and sharing. So can we shift in the next few years this I suppose, norm of housing, holding data indefinitely um, to safeguard compliance, that type of thing. Can we eliminate the need for sensitive documents like passport, driver's license to be emailed, uploaded, sent in share boxes and Outlook and all over the place? Like, how can we really change the trend of that? Mm. Um, and this notion about reshare rather mm. than redo, like, can people be able to, I see a world in five years where people are able to use their ID to streamline process and unlock really core value moments within their life, um, as well as making sure it's accessible to all Australians. I'm very passionate to make sure that we're thinking in that space. Um, and then lastly, also portable across regions. I dream of a world in five years where I can buy a beer across the road in Melbourne and use the same idea to buy a beer in Bali. So that would be fabulous if we can be thinking about it across regionally as well. I'm going to pick your cross region and expand it to cross universe. I think that sure. increasingly, yes. but I think increasingly people exist in an online Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Yeah. And and the the sort of mundane physical world is very important. Yeah. And increasingly people are online. And I'm writing a book, Jade Birch at the moment, about payments and financial services in the metaverse. Yeah. And I think to think around what are those interactions and how how will I want to show up? What pieces of information will I want to share about myself? Who will I let view those pieces of information? Mm -hmm. And I think we're five years away. It's one of those funny time frames that in, in some respects it's a long time, in other respects it's it's not a lot of time at all. 
I think there are already cohorts who spend more time in, in Roblox. You have teenagers genuinely making good money out of branding and creating digital shoes for their avatars and earning real money. So I don't think it's it's that far away. So mm -hmm. I would like my bank to give me a credential that I can hold in a wallet that perhaps it's not my bank's wallet because I've chosen someone else to manage my keys. So I've chosen someone else to do the key management, but I want a credential from my bank that I can use in Roblox if I'm guiding a teenager first through it. Yeah. Um in in another online environment. So and I don't I think we'll get further towards mm. that in five years than we think because the building blocks are already there. I'm very cool with that. And and whilst you know we framed that uh Alicia framed that question in terms of five years, you know, part of the session that we ran there was to you know, let's actually change that variable and actually contemplate it in terms of, of 10 and 15 year horizons and whether that's about quantum encryption or whether it's about metaverse. And yeah, I'm glad you also mentioned David Birch there because as David joined us on Nap Digital Next not long ago, he made the point that we're probably facing into a world fairly soon where it's not just customers dealing with merchants, dealing with banks and being overseen by regulators, but customer bots mm -hmm. with merchant yeah. bots and, and bank bots. And, and so it is that we need to build the ecosystem that we want for, let's say, three to five years from now, but we need to yep. also ensure we future-proof it for what might be 10, 15, 20 years beyond that too. Yes, I, I agree. And I say that the building blocks around at the moment, like verifiable credentials and the different protocols and DeFi protocols, they are the ones, if we get them right, that will enable that interoperable, connected mm -hmm. future. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Victoria, and thank you, Larissa. It's been a very rich conversation. We've covered a lot of ground, and I'm going to attempt to try and summarise a few key points out of it, but there's been so much to cover. Uh, I don't know that I'll do it justice. One big theme, I think, was the point that uh, you made, Victoria, of, of standards standards as infrastructure. And you've emphasised standards a couple of times, and also with that linkage to the, the Open Wallet Foundation. Um, but as you say, if we look back to the legacy of the Murray Inquiry and, and many inquiries past, the point about network effects and standards is one that, that comes through. Um, Larissa, you brought in the point that it's so important that we have government in the conversation. And as you put it, it's not that we need a government ID for everything, and you've emphasised the need for, for choice, but that we do need alignment. And uh, uh, I think that point of, to some extent, need their blessing. <laughs> um, data sharing, I think, has come through as a, as a recurring theme. And, and one point actually that came, came through in the design sprint was the, the difference between showing and sharing. Mm -hmm. um, that I might hold up my license and show it to the guy at, at BWS or Dan Murphy's versus the scenario where I actually have to provide the detail and enter it and and who knows where it's stored. Um, and I think in in, in that uh, area, Larissa, you made the point about the big onus on employers for, for showing how they manage uh, the data they collect. I do like that statistic you shared of the 71% um, that admits. <laughs> so basically everyone does it. Um, but, but also I think the point you, you built up that was, was about rethinking the process. And it's not just how do we digitalize the IDs we have today in the existing part of the process we have today, but rather perhaps linking to a point you've made around consumer needs. Um, we need to get the design right. But also as part of that, it gives us the opportunity to perhaps rethink some of the core processes um, that that sits in. Um, to achieve the point of adoption, um, we've heard about the need for education, but also I like the framing of 
you know, perhaps we don't want to call it digital identity. Mm. Perhaps we need to face to the reality of the utility we're providing here is about enabling safer and more convenient verification um, for the core functions as we go about things in our lives, as well as, again, um, Larissa, the point you've emphasised on choice. And I want to close with just picking up the point about um, expansion across regions. And it's true that our our two design sprint days so far have taken quite a, a domestic focus. And and I think understandably because you know, we have a, a significant challenge ahead within our market alone. But early in the new year, uh, NAB will convene, this time probably a half-day um, further design sprint looking at cross-border connectivity. And one that I'm really interested in, and you know, I think increasingly passionate about at the moment is looking at some initiatives that some US banks have been working on together with, with Rod Bootby's company ID Partners and looking at the, the case studies of things like major ticketing companies when the, the Taylor Swift tickets come out or major footwear providers when it's the, the next lot of LeBron or Steph Curry sneakers. And how do you ensure that it's not a bad actor or a scalper buying up the, the first 80,000 uh, units by their bot? Um, well, as banks potentially provide the verification in the US market there, this is actually a real person that deserves their spot in the queue. Um, I expect Australians will want to be able to participate in those ticket and sneaker releases as well. And so it's one that uh, I'm very keen that, that, that now we step forward and ensure that, that our customers will have that same access and we need to bring about mm-hmm. the cross-border connectivity that you referred to there. So thank you, Victoria. Thank you, Larissa. Thanks for being part of the conversation on that Digital Next. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you. And next up, uh, we're going to continue actually with the, the Futurist theme that Alicia's alluded to. Professor Andy Hines at the University of Houston, who leads their Futurist program, and he's also got an upcoming book up that's quite thought-provoking around what economic models we may see perhaps after capitalism. So please join us again then. Thanks for listening on Nap Digital Next.